Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Ruth. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Ruth chapter 1 this morning. Well, many of you know that I have a, a really deep love for the writing of C.S. Lewis. And... Um, as an apologist, as a Christian thinker, a theologian, philosopher, there's really no one human person that I could say that's impacted me through his writings as much as, as C.S. Lewis. And I would love to sit up here and just, and just say it's, his, it's mere Christianity, it's the problem of pain, it's a grief observed, all these great theological works that he has, he's put together, but it hasn't been Lewis's nonfiction writing, his apologetic work, that's gripped my heart as much as his, his work in fiction, his children's stories, and especially the Chronicles of Narnia. It wasn't too long ago in, in Kansas at DTS, they teach you how to uh, diagram Greek sentences, to take apart the Hebrew. I even studied Aramaic for a time at DTS, and, and when we were in Kansas, Brandy would come along and, and she'd come into my office, and of course, she knows how much I study and how much attention I give to the text and, and diving in exegetically week in and week out. And on my shelves, she'll see commentary after commentary, pastors in the room, you've got Bible dictionaries, we've got Bible encyclopedias, Scott, Brad, you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. They're kind of like our trophy shelves, all these reference materials. And Brandy kept saying to me over and over again, she said, Jared, you know, I, I think your life as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, would be deeply enriched if you would read fiction just as much as you're reading nonfiction. I didn't believe her for a long time. First of all, I said, listen, I don't have time for that stuff. Children's stories, fables, fiction, this is not worth it to me. But then I read uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Eustace and the Dragon, and my heart was totally gripped in a different way than it's ever been before. I don't know if you've had this experience. A lot of you guys have been Christians for a long time and you read something and you feel like you've been reconverted over and over again, just seeing the gospel in a different light. That's been my experience at least for a large part in, of time. And when I first came to TBC, it's interesting, a couple of years ago, of course my preaching style is different than the pastor who was before me. His, his preaching style was different than the pastor before him and vice versa, everybody's a little bit different. We all bring different strengths, weaknesses, quirks all the annoying stuff that we do up here as, as we preach the word of God. But I got a lot of questions from people. One of the most dominant questions was, was this, Jared, love your preaching, love your sermons, but why do you use so many stories when you preach? And over time, I tried to gently and, and just compassionately come alongside and say, why did Jesus use so many stories when he preached? Why did he tell so many parables? Why in Scripture do we have 75% of the Bible as narrative genre rather than epistles, uh, bullet points, systematic theology? God is just, God is love, God is light. If God wanted to, he could have given us everything just in newspaper headline format, made it really simple and easy. But what does he give us? He gives us stories lives that have been changed by grace, by redemption. We dive into these stories, we read ourselves into them. 
We think about what they went through, live similar experiences to what they went through. Ultimately, always drawing our gaze and our eyes upon Jesus and upon the cross. Preaching must not just grip the mind. It's not just information, this is about transformation. So God didn't die for us so that we might be smarter sinners. He died so that we can be transformed saints. And he does this through stories. A lot of times he uses stories to draw us into a deeper understanding, to grip our hearts. The ancient Greeks and the Romans believed that feelings were dominantly in the body, passions. This was stuff of your physical body that you experienced. But the mind, the will, the emotions, that was the stuff associated with the soul. And so if you wanted to be a virtuous person, if you wanted to be a person of character for the ancients, it was literally mind over matter. They put their physical passions to the side and they dug in with their thought life, with reason, with rationality. Feeling and thinking was essentially mutually exclusive. You didn't combine the two, you kept them in their separate categories altogether. Modern culture, of course, has completely reversed that. We've gone the exact opposite direction. Today, it's not the, the mind that, that wins over the emotions. Today, it's the passions, it's the emotions, it's the desires that are more important than the mind, than what we think. Today, your feelings are who you really are. The goal in life is to feel better about yourself, to have experiences. Uh, ultimately leading us right to the heart. And the Bible's understanding of the heart is, is very significant. Uh, the Bible tells us things like, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Uh, it's with the mouth that we confess, but it's with the heart that we believe. The heart is the perfect picture. It's a metonymy for the whole. It's, it's everything who we are. If our body was a computer, our heart would be the motherboard. If, um, if our body was a car engine, it would be the oil filter. Everything ultimately goes through that, keeps everything running fluidly, organizing our thoughts, telling us how to live our lives. Your heart is, is a representative for how you live. It's what you trust the most. Your heart tells you exactly what you love the most. And so in ministry, we have often experienced this. In Kansas, we had a, a situation ministered to to girls in Kansas, of course, at our church, there was women and there was men. Uh, it, was, it wasn't too long, it was a funny story. Kansas, we were kind of out in the sticks a little bit. It wasn't too long before I got there. Must have been about, gosh, what would it have been, eight years ago, that the men sat on one side of the church and the women sat on the other side of the church. You guys ever been to something like that before? It, it was literally like not too long ago that they, they went co-ed, finally. Um, we had, there was a girl that we counseled, Brandy and I, tried to come alongside of, and, and she was this, she was a person who was uh, infatuated with relationships. She wanted to be married so deeply and so badly. And so every relationship that she got into, it wasn't but a couple weeks before she was like, this could be the one. I think I'm going to get married. And of course, every guy is like, I'm out of here running for the, running for the door, right? In her heart, she desperately desired something, more than she desired anything else. And over and over again, what we were telling her was, listen, we know you've been going to this church for a long time. You've heard the gospel. You know the gospel in your mind. 
but it hasn't impacted your heart. And there's a difference between knowing facts and believing the truth in your heart. Another way of saying this is what we really are is what we love the most. It's the things that grip our heart the most. And to figure out what grips your heart the most, oftentimes it takes suffering and loss. God takes things away from us in order that we can see the things that have taken priority over and above God in our lives. We're gonna start a brand new sermon series through the, through the book of Ruth this morning. And as this book opens, just like the girl in Kansas that we continually ministered to, she went through loss of relationship, she went through trial after trial, and her heart was always broken and torn, and we had to pick up the pieces. You're gonna see a heart that is torn. This book is named after Ruth. The story is about Naomi. And she's going to have to guard her heart if she's gonna make it through a difficult tragedy in life. I wanna give you three things this morning in Ruth 1 about guarding your hearts. To love God more than you love anything else and to serve him more than you serve anyone else. In order to guard your heart effectively, you must spend time thanking, thinking, and loving. Thanking, thinking, and loving. We're gonna talk about those, two, those three things as we go. Really quick facts on the book of Ruth, just as we're starting this sermon, I just wanna point out a few things as we go. Ruth is one of only two books in the entire Bible that's named after a Gentile. Luke, of course, is the other book that's named after a Gentile. And even though this story is named after Ruth, the book is named after Ruth, like I said, this story is more about Naomi. Ruth is a main character. She is not the central character. Uh, Boaz is probably even more important as the story unfolds. But this is a story about Naomi. The story is nicely structured into four acts that correspond with the four chapters. Uh, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions in your Bible, they're not inspired. They didn't come alongside with the Hebrew and the Greek. Those were added after. But actually, the chapter divisions in the book of Ruth are, are very solid. Every scene, every, every act ends with Naomi at the end. Most of the time, she's talking with Ruth. And the plot is carried along primarily through dialogue, speech acts. Out of 85 verses in the entire book of Ruth, 59 of those are dialogue, speaking one person to another. Every character is named in the book of Ruth, except for one, and that's very significant. A lot of commentators talk about what each person's name means. Ruth is uh, friendliness, is how you would probably translate that. Naomi is pleasant. Um, every character is named except for one and I just want you to hold on to that one. There's two options for dating the book of Ruth. Uh, we do not know when Ruth was written. There's, everybody talks about the end of the book. In chapter four, you have a genealogy that leads up to the person of David. So the earliest writing of Ruth is probably during the monarchy, during the time of King David in Israel. Some people date it during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when the exiles returned to Jerusalem after Babylonian captivity. There's a lot of themes which you're gonna read the word return about eight or nine times just in the first chapter of Ruth, so they might be picking up on that. Ruth is one of five books that's in a category of books in the Old Testament called the writings, the ketuvim, is how you say it in Hebrew, it's the megillot. Every year, the Israelites, during feasts and festivals as part of their annual worship, they would read one book of the Bible at a specific feast and at a specific festival. Book of Ruth, was read once a year on the Feast of Weeks. We know it as Pentecost. 
It was the beginning of the barley harvest, where we see a lot of the action climaxing in, in the book of Ruth. But I want to talk about guarding our hearts this morning, and, and let's jump into the text here with number one in your outline. Give thanks always, not just often. Give thanks always, not just often. Look down at your text at verse one, Ruth one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. That name means, my God is king. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and they remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left. Might make a special note of that verb. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, Moabitess. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left. Same word from verse three. Without her two sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. The context here as we look at the book of Ruth and as it opens up is the dark days of the judges. And during this time, Israel was spiraling downward morally and failing politically. The fundamental problem for Israel during the time of the judges and, and during this time that Ruth is written was not political, however. It was spiritual. Israel didn't lack men. What they lacked was godly men in leadership. The last verse in Judges reminds us of this time. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Leaders at the time were more concerned about self than they were about sin or even God. In Texas, there's a, there's a saying about these kind of leaders. Very short, very simple. It goes something like this. Big hat, no cattle. If you are a, a dark spiritual leader who doesn't have the context, the integrity, and the character to go with it. It will only be time before things around you start falling apart. This is the backdrop. This is the scene of Ruth. It's very dark. It's very bleak, and tragedy is all around. The next phrase tells us that there was a famine in the land, and and most commentators are quick to say that perhaps there was a famine in the land because God was judging Israel. Maybe he was disciplining them, Certainly other places in the Bible where this would be the case, Deuteronomy 28, if you're not faithful to the covenant, part of the covenant curse is that you will experience famine in the land, the harvest will not come. First Kings 18 talks about the, uh, the drought under Jezebel, if you remember that, in the days of Elijah. But sometimes famines in the Bible are neutral, not necessarily discipline or judgment from God. Genesis 12, Abraham goes to sojourn, Abram goes to sojourn in the land of Egypt because there was a famine in the land. Remember when the 11 sons, 12 sons of Israel, they go and they uh, see Joseph in Egypt because why? Because there was a famine in the land. The patriarchs left the land of Israel during the famine and they found blessing there through their brother Joseph. It doesn't always have to equal the wrath or the judgment of God. The narrator of Ruth never attributes God as the source of this famine. Most people assume that or they think that. He doesn't even say that going to Moab was sinful 
per se. Distinctly sinful. Did Elimelech die because he left Judah and Bethlehem and is in the, the land of promise from the Lord? The text doesn't say. Did his two sons die because they took on foreign wives from, from Moab? Were the two wives barren for 10 years because they were committing a, a sin in their marriage just by marrying foreign wives? We don't know. Maybe that's the case, maybe not. You can't draw firm lines where the Bible doesn't draw firm lines. Nowhere does it say that God is the specific source of Naomi's pain, and I, and I think there's, there's something that all of us can take from this as we read these passages. Maybe we, we should be a little slower when we suffer to ask why and quicker to ask how. How is God going to redeem this? Instead of why am I suffering? Sometimes we suffer because we're foolish. Other times we suffer because the world has fallen. There is spiritual warfare all around you in the heavenly places. We are victimized by that living in a fallen and a broken world. Um, they, they say in, in ministry, you guys I've uh, probably heard this before. The only thing that's normal and, or typical in ministry is that nothing is normal or typical each week. Each week comes with its surprises and its challenges. And, and so I, I've got people that I go to. You don't know them. They live across states, across the country, that I can talk to about, you're not going to believe what happened today at the church office. You're not going to believe what I experienced today at the church. And so me and a couple buddies, we've got this little running thing and we try to outdo one another with our stories. Crazy things happen. People's lives are difficult. Trials, suffering, things that you can never expect, they happen all the time. And so we act as an outlet for each other. We talk about these things in a, in a context that's helpful. Helps us work through them and figure out how to counsel and shepherd better through them. One time I was, I was telling him just about some of the experiences uh, that I was going through, and, and my buddy just stopped me right there, and he, and he said this. He said, Jared, I know, I know this is a time to, to unleash and to let go and stuff, but let me just stop you and ask you, what do you have to be thankful for where you are right there in ministry? And it was just a, a small little question that changed the perspective on everything. And at the time, I didn't want to hear that question. At the time I wanted to hang up the phone. Man, I'm just here to vent to you, bro. I don't need a Bible study devotion from you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says this, give thanks in all circumstances. If it wasn't for that tiny word, all, I would like that verse a lot better. <laughs> give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. And that's really hard to say, easy to say, excuse me, but it is difficult to live. It would have been so easy for Naomi to, to grow resentful and bitter. It would have been so difficult for her to be thankful through her situations that God had entrusted to her. And then you come to verse 6, right? And here's how the scene ends. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and giving them food. That verb visited there is, is highly nuanced in the Hebrew. In fact, it's difficult. One scholar says perhaps no Hebrew verb is more difficult to translate passage by passage than this specific verb. To visit in the lexicon means to see attentively, to regard, to look upon. 
God is depicted as, as regarding, seeing attentively the suffering and the difficulty that, no, that Naomi was experiencing. Another lexicon says, when God is the subject of this verb, to visit, it means to attend or to take note of. This is the same verb that you see in Genesis 21, when God visited Sarah in her barrenness and gave her a child. Same one that you see in 1 Samuel chapter two, the Lord visited barren Hannah. There's always a time in our life where we can be thankful, and it should be all the time, not just often. No matter what we're going through, no matter the trials, the difficulties we experience, we can give thanks through all circumstances at all times. To know that God is truly sovereign, he loves us, he will care for us. He won't give us something that we cannot handle. He will give us those things that we have to depend deeply on him and confess that we are not in control of our lives when things happen. So we thank always, not just often. Number two, we think more, not less. Thank always, not just often. Think more, not less. Look down at verse seven. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return from the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly, it's the word hesed there, with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you might find rest each in the house of her, of her husband. Then she kissed them, they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me as for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi is holding a, a double-barrel shotgun here. She's telling her daughters-in-law to leave her, and she's gonna unload both barrels through some logical reasoning. First, she says this, barrel number one. Naomi tells her daughters-in-law to go back to the home of their mothers. This is interesting because typically, if you were a widow, you wouldn't go back to the home of your mother, you'd go back to the home of your father. Probably she's insinuating that you should go to the home of your mother to find another husband, to remarry. You're young enough now. You still have a future ahead of you. The second barrel that she unloads is the last part of verse 13. Look back down at your text. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi was convinced that the hand of the Lord was against her, that it was dangerous for these girls to stay with her. The phrase hand of the Lord is, is a euphemism. It's most often used to describe the power of God the supremacy of the Lord, that he is the Almighty, he is the one who controls all things with his righteous right hand, with his mighty, powerful hand. When it's compared, hand of the Lord, when it is um, connected to go out, that next verb that Naomi uses, it is only used right here in the Old Testament with those two verbs next to each other. Um, you guys know Philippians 4, 8, you probably memorize this verse if you're a wanna. Philippians 4.8 says this, whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence or anything worthy of praise, the Apostle Paul says this, he says, think about these things. Thinking carefully might be one of the most important things you could ever do when you suffer. Thinking about the character of God. What is Naomi thinking about? How is she thinking about God? What does she say about him? Where does she go in her mind? Is it right? How is her theology when you compare this text? John Piper's got a, got a statement. He says this. Here's his conclusion about Naomi. I would take Naomi's theology any day over the sentimental views of God which dominate evangelical magazines and books today. Naomi is unshaken and sure about three things. God exists, God is sovereign, and God has afflicted her. Has God afflicted her? Where in the text does it say that? Or has he simply allowed this to come on Naomi, much like he allowed Job to suffer in the Old Testament? You ever gone to a bookstore and gone into the section about overcoming like anxiety and stress in your life? Go to Barnes and Noble, you'll see this little little section, it might be by the psychology books or, or the health and wellness, um, have your best, best life now. It is, it is riddled. You'll find hundreds and hundreds of books about what to do when you experience anxiety, stress, difficult times, and trials. None of those books will ever tell you that the best thing that you can do in the midst of, of suffering and difficulty is to think about it. None of those books will ever tell you to, to take a step back and think about the bigger things in life. Why are you here? What is life? What's your purpose in life? What were you designed for? All of those books will say essentially the same thing. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. Most of the admonitions come across as this way. If you're going through trials, if you're going through a stressful time, get away, get out of it. Build in times of rest and relaxation. Go to the beach. Take a long walk. Figure out something that you can do in your routine day to deal with the stress in a very constructive way that's going to help you. Hundreds of resources all saying the same, same thing. When we, when we suffer, the world will tell you to think less. In the Bible, when we suffer, God tells us to think more. Naomi was going through a hard time. She was struggling. Immediately, she thinks that the hand of the Lord is against her. Is it? Or is she just caught up in a spiritually dark world where there is chaos in the heavenly places? And this has come upon her, maybe even for no reason of herself, but maybe because this world has fallen and desperately needs to be redeemed. Tozer says this, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. Naomi thinks that God is out to get her. But this is not a story of judgment, wrath, and condemnation. This is a story of compassion, grace, forgiveness, and it's a story of redemption. That's where the story of, Ru of Naomi and Ruth is going to lead us to as we keep turning the pages. And so, as we guard our heart, we think always, not often. We think more about God, rightly about God, not less. Number three, we love much, not little. 
We love much, not little. Look down at verse 14. Then they lift up their voices and wept again, these three ladies. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, in less than one chapter, we realize that Orpah is gonna function as a character foil here. A character foil is a person who comes on the scene pretty much and leaves just as soon as they come on. We don't know much about Orpah, but this is the last mention of her in the entire story of Ruth. All she is there for is to highlight Ruth, Ruth's character, to draw a comparison and a contrast from Ortha to Ruth. She leaves the story as, mo- as quickly as she comes in, and again, the attention is going to draw us to the character of Ruth. In Sherlock Holmes, you've got Sherlock and Dr. Watson. What do you know about Dr. Watson? Not as much as you know about Sherlock, right? Because they're character foils. In Lord of the Rings, you've got Boromir and you've got Aragorn. Boromir is there, he's gone before the two towers. Anybody following with me? He's a character foil. Here's what you don't do, Boromir. Here's what you do, Aragorn. Whereas Orpah kissed Naomi, Ruth clung to her. And the verb means that they, they stayed close to one another. They, they embraced, they hugged each other. It's a word that means there was an emotional bond between them. They were loyal to each other and they formed an alliance, even in warfare. You will see that Hebrew word cling to. But you can't help but not compare these two women. There are two responses to Naomi. Orpah did what we would expect her to do. Ruth Ruth did the unexpected. Orpah did what was good for her. Ruth did what was good for another. Orpah took the easy road. Ruth took the harder road. Some consider that Orpah did good. If she did, then Ruth did great. Who do you have in your life that sticks to you during times of suffering? As a Christian, Who are the Ruths that you have that will hold on to you when you're in the thicket? All of us will experience suffering. All of us will be tempted to think wrongly about God. We need the Ruths in our lives to draw us and to bring us through difficulties and hard times. Verse 15, she said, Naomi here, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. It's, it's worth looking into her commitment in this oath here. Uh, you've got a lot of repetition. It's very poetic as we read this. Um, where you go, I will go. You lodge, I will lodge. Where you stay, I will stay. Your home will be my home. Your people will be my people. Your God is going to be my God, the one that I serve. Where you die, I am going to die. At the end of verse 17 is where we get an oath formula, and we realize that this is a specific formula that's given to us in other places in the Old Testament. There's two clauses at the end of verse 17. Both of them are introduced by the Hebrew word thus. May the Lord thus, may the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me and you. Describes the punishment for breaking this oath. Second, it gives the condition. The condition is death. There's no way that this is gonna break apart from death. It's a love commitment from Ruth to Naomi to stick with her regardless, no matter what. 
And Naomi responds not with words here, but with acknowledgement. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. What do we do with the beginning of this book, beginning of the story? I want to give you two points of application. One is, is right where we started about the heart. As all of us read through the book of Ruth, we need to guard against something. We need to guard against interpreting God's love by your circumstances. Guard against interpreting God's love by your circumstances. Naomi made some bold statements about God, all of them stemming from her circumstances and her experiences of tragedy and loss. Again, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Not your circumstances themselves, your thoughts are more important than your circumstances. Paul says something interesting. We started this, this uh, service looking at Philippians chapter two. You know Philippians four? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your request made known to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts. It's a peace that passes all understanding. We can literally have a peace of God that is above our circumstances, beyond them. Some people are quick to define peace as the absence of conflict. Things are going well, times aren't too stressful, there's no anxiety, there's no, no issues that I'm going, going through. Peace of God is something that we can have in stressful times or in good times. It's beyond those things. But if peace is greater than your circumstances, if we're looking to a peace that is beyond what we experience, You'll be a person who interprets God's love by his love, not by what you're going through, not the situations that you're experiencing. Guard against interpreting God's love based on your experiences and your situations, but interpret it directly from the word of God, and you'll be able to handle those things much better. Secondly, we need to make a distinction between the true good and the things that point to what's good. All of us in our hearts need to make a a strong distinction between the true good and the things that point us to that true good. Ruth takes place in a, a very dark and chaotic time in the book of Judges. And yet we read about coming back to Bethlehem. We read about a light that shines from Bethlehem. Have you ever heard anything that sounds distinctly like that before in your Bibles? Sometimes it seems like God is killing us when actually he's saving us. And for Naomi, her experiences really suggest that God is killing her when actuality he is saving her. And I want you to see one thing. Back in chapter one, look back at verse two. It says something really interesting in Hebrew. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, the name of his two sons. Two sons there. Pay special attention to that. Skip down to verse five. Both Malon and Kilion died, so the woman was left without her two sons. In both of those verses, verse two and verse five, the word for son is not your typical Hebrew word for son. It's, it's the word for uh, children. Yeled is how you would pronounce it. This is a child, maybe even a baby or an infant. Why would the narrator be describing Malon and Kilion at the age of being married to these women as children, maybe even as, as infants? 
It's puzzled commentators. They've, they've looked for reasons. They've tried to explain it in many ways they can. I want you to turn over to chapter 4 and just give you a, a quick spoiler alert. This is not the only time that that word for child is used in, in the book of Ruth. Look down at chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a yeled, a son, a child. Ruth is drawing our attention to the one person that can redeem her story. When Ruth comes to an end, it, it won't be because Naomi has figured out how to relax and get through the stressful times in life. It won't be because of some self-help little point of philosophy that gets her through difficulties and trials and tragedy and, and certainly a, a difficult loss that she's going through. The thing that redeems this story, what the narrator does is he takes us back to where he started. He talked about two sons at the beginning. Naomi was looking at those two sons and she was looking at her husband for her deepest significance for her heart and life. If anything happened to Naomi, she could always rely on her husband, Elimelech. If anything happened to Elimelech, she could rely on these two sons, Malon and Kilion. Guess what God did? Took them all away. Now, instead of relying on those men that had become so important in her heart, now at the end of the story, she's relying on a different child, a redeemer, one that led to the birth of King David. When we read the story of Ruth, we should read in the pages of Ruth the story of Jesus, our Redeemer, the one who can take us through any difficulty and any loss in life and help us to live above those circumstances and to overcome them because we have a God who will redeem even the deepest of circumstances. Have you ever heard a story in the Bible about a child who was born in Bethlehem who will redeem his people? Sounds a little familiar. Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel, it is good news because the good news is not about us. It's not about what we can do. It's not about Naomi. It's not even about Ruth and what she did and Boaz. God redeems our stories. It's good news because this is the story of his birth, of his coming into the world to redeem us from sin, darkness, and death and to give us everlasting life. Naomi thinks the Lord is out to get her God is out to save her and to redeem her. And it's going to come through the birth of a redeemer. Jesus is the one that needs to take first place in all of our hearts. When we read the story and we think about our own lives and the things that take priority, our greatest loves in life need to be replaced by the only love that will overcome every circumstance and difficulty. And it's in Jesus that we place our trust, our hope, and our love at the deepest root of our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you so much for, for the story of Ruth. We thank you for um, the time that we're going to have this fall to just look at these chapters and, and see Naomi. Uh, we see a woman here who's gone through some difficult, difficult circumstances in life. And yet through all of it, you redeem it. You redeem it through the birth of a child. Lord, I pray that uh, as we leave this place and think about our own struggles, our own difficulties, the trials that 
you have allowed us to go through simply because we live in a fallen world. I pray that we will find our hope, deepest hope, significance, identity, and mostly our deepest love in you and Jesus and his work on the cross on our behalf. We thank you for his grace. We thank you for his redemption. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.